sustainability, climate change. It's a global problem. No one entity is going to make a difference. You know, it, it has to be done in a highly collaborative way. Which means very different relationships with your suppliers, for example, where they become partners rather than uh, getting uh, beaten up by purchasing uh, agents, uh, as has been traditional in the past. And so you want to sit down with them and say, okay, how can you ship that to us with less plastic? Do we really need to wrap everything like that? Then we have to uh, send that plastic to landfill. We don't want to do that. So if you could figure out how how to do this differently. But that's a conversation that goes back and forth between uh, two friends. And that the real uh, problem, Josh, that you're pointing at is how do we consume less? And that's a big problem when companies' purpose is to get people to consume more. I mean, that is, that is a huge problem. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. It's rare to meet someone who created a word that became common. My guests today, Gifford and Libba Pinchot, created the term entrepreneurship. In the world of leadership and entrepreneurship, they created a whole discipline. After years of activism in the 60s, through entrepreneurship in the 90s, And what attracted me the most, they started a business school from scratch, the first to offer an MBA in sustainable business. As you'll hear in our conversation, their initiative did more than just teach students or start one school. They changed the field. And I've worked with a lot of business schools. They all now must work on sustainability. As a professor, I can't imagine sustainability and nature not infused into any course that I teach. They were part of the community that started that trend. In earlier conversations, we talked about them starting a new branch of Leadership in the Environment, that is to say, a new Leadership in the Environment podcast for their audience. So to the end of our conversation that you're you're about to hear, we go meta and start talking about how to start a podcast. I hope that you listening consider starting a branch yourself. It will give you the opportunity to start a Leadership in the Environment podcast for your community. It will give you the opportunity to lead a movement. It will also set you up to meet the most important people in a field of your interest. If interested in becoming an important player in a field of your choice... And helping people love the experience, contact me and we'll set up training. And now, back to Gifford and Libba. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Gifford and Libba Pinchot. Gifford and Libba, how are you guys doing? Great. Thanks for having us. Glad you could be here. And I want to go over your background so that listeners can learn more about you, about entrepreneurship, about what I'm most interested in is founding a business school with a sustainable business MBA conservation in general. Last time we spoke, we talked about starting a podcast, but just before we hit record, we started talking about current events. And I think it's almost impossible not to talk about current events right now. When last we spoke, the current event was a pandemic and who could have imagined that that would be eclipsed by police and Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And actually, do you guys have anything top of mind that comes to mind for you guys in any of these things? One thing for me is uh, back in the early 60s, I was a civil rights organizer, and uh, we had tremendous success back then. Uh, We integrated restaurants. Uh, We generally began to see some of the formal barriers to black people dropping away, and there was a time of great enthusiasm followed by decades of disappointment Mm. as uh, those changes stuck and things were better. Mm -hmm. 
but things were also still not at all good. And no more progress was being made and people were not taking in. In fact, there was some going backwards. And we arrived at a situation where all of a sudden there's a recognition that this is not good, that, that we have to change things. And it's very encouraging once again. You know, I can remember putting 500 people on the street in a demonstration. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would be uh, front page news, top of the fold. 500 people. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then then we got to the stage where you could put 100,000 people on the street and it was on page eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and people just didn't care about this anymore. And now uh, what's happening is, uh, <laughs> first of all, we're putting more people on the street. But uh, it's definitely front page news now. And uh, it is, uh, I think, the beginning of a really big change in our society. And I'm very encouraged. You know, I just wanted to say that and when when we get into our backgrounds, whether it's founding the school and working with, you know, 700 students or whether it's uh, the work we did in innovation and entrepreneuring or my work as a coach as well. It's all about empowerment, which is a or an old-fashioned word, but, you know, it does have the word power in it. And balancing the power to some extent is what's going on. And the thing that I've most noticed is that an element of empowerment is helping people look at the bigger systems they're in, right? Because you're, you're no good with power unless you're taking responsibility for the wider systems. You're not trustworthy and bringing your values to the wider systems. And it seems to me that this is the year of of people noticing unintended consequences. You know, noticing that if we just deal with chokeholds, we handle the problem of Black Lives Matter. Or if we, you know, even the mass conversation, you know, the unintended consequences of of opening uh, the economy perhaps too soon or the unintended consequences with the, you know, in the people who are protesting, is it about economics? Is it about COVID? Is it, you know, it's the, it's looking at the whole system. So in any event, I think it's, I think people's perspectives are broadening and that that's really exciting. People are getting smarter. You know, since Gifford began speaking about the sixties and you, both of your perspectives, it seems to be a very broad it's, it suggests to me educator. It suggests to me people with leadership experience. Could you go back to the 60s and, and bring us up to things that are relevant in your backgrounds to the current situation, be it the pandemic, be it Black Lives Matter? Yeah, but you want to talk about Stokely Carmichael? <laughs> <laughs> or, or sing a protest song, which he did at a conference of 1,000 people, 1,500 people yesterday. <laughs> they had a cabaret, so it was appropriate. <laughs> Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round, turn me round, turn me round. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. I'm gonna keep on a walking, keep on a talking, marching on that freedom land. And did you sing that recently or was that from the 60s or all throughout? That was a uh, a song that we sang a lot when we were sitting in and those sorts of things. Uh, and. Uh, then uh, I sang it at this conference uh, yesterday wow. because it it was a cabaret and I wanted to bring in the protests which were going on and the fact that uh, 
that this is one of the most important things that's happening in our society today. We're sort of balanced between whether dealing with racism or dealing with climate change is the most important thing right now. And I think the the answer is we have to do both. There's no way around it. And yeah, you guys, I've always wondered growing up, a lot of people talk about connecting business with, with change and social change. And I've gone that route to some degree, but mostly I haven't found it I can't say mostly, but to a large extent, I've found a lot of people who profess to use business to bring about justice or social change. It, I don't find that happening so much. But when it does happen, I find it tremendously uplifting and rewarding and, and gives me hope and expectation. And I feel like going back, the farther back we go, the more that would be a more tenuous connection for people to make business and justice, business and changing culture. It feels like you guys are in the middle of that. Yeah, I think that... Uh if we take a longer-term perspective, businesses were more holistic expressions of, uh, of the society, uh, and that the dominance of Wall Street and of institutional investors who care only about money and who are judged only by their uh, financial performance has made uh, business a much more limited uh, thing than it used to be. If you're running a, a small uh, car dealership in a in a small town in uh, in the 1950s you went to the same church that uh, the people who were buying cars went to you uh, it was all part of being a community member and yes you were making money but that wasn't the only thing you were doing you were participating in your society in in in, in many different ways and this idea as business of business as socially isolated from social purpose i think is a relatively new idea Maybe 20 years, I think, you know, that the uh, that Wall Street has dominated. And you look at the, you know, look at the hospitals and the nursing homes, the, the things that, that we rely on as citizens for our survival. And they have very recently, many of them become very finance focused and, and therefore are not fit to support us. And doing appalling things. Uh, when they become too finance focused, so I think a, a general ill in our society is focusing on only one value, on only one purpose, and uh, that being making more money. And uh, that was why we started a business school that was triple bottom line oriented and considered dealing with the environment and social problems as equally important. So when we taught marketing, we taught mission driven marketing. When we uh, taught uh, finance, we talked about how to measure the impact and the social and environmental impact, as well as how to measure the financial impact of any decision which you wanted to make. And, and we felt uh, we came out of the, uh, uh, the 90s with a success in the, uh, in the internet security business. So sold the company in 98 uh, at a time when internet valuations were high. And we decided that the thing to do was uh, to uh, spend our ill-gotten gains on uh, doing something really uh, important uh, in the world. And we looked at, uh, you know, all the various ways in which the system could be changed. We looked at changing consumer behavior, and we saw a lot of good people working on that, maybe not with the success they wanted, but we didn't see where we could add value to that. We looked at changing the way investments were made. And again, we had a lot of friends who were working in that who were better positioned to do so than, uh, than we were. We looked at working through government, and we saw lots and lots of NGOs that were working on trying to change government policy. 
And there seemed to be, you know, you, it was one step forward and one step back in terms of changing policy. You do, you had to have basically business had to change and it had to change its purpose if uh, government was going to be allowed to move ahead, move ahead in the ways that it needed to. And so we looked at changing business and we said, you know, the, the point which uh, all this uh, theory that it's only about money is coming from is from academia. You would think that academia would be taking the broader view and that business people would be taking a more narrow view, but actually the reverse was true. And it's partly true mm-hmm. because in academia, you like to have things that are very small and discreet and, and you can deal in your specialty. And uh, it's much easier to do numbers about finance than it is to do numbers about social impact. And so uh, mm-hmm. you could get ahead by publishing about uh, the financial impacts of what you're doing. You couldn't get ahead by publishing about the social impacts of what you were doing. So academia was on on the wrong track as we saw it. And so we said, well, how do we change that? Well, we tried to change uh, other business schools and that wasn't working. So uh, we decided the only thing to do was to start a business school and prove that you could have a triple bottom line business school and that students would come and that employers would hire the graduates and, uh, and, and the graduates would start successful firms and in general succeed in business. And that's uh, what we did. We set out to change, not change the whole of business school education by creating an example of what it should be. And uh, I think uh, to some extent we succeeded. Uh, uh, more and more business schools are at least giving lip service to sustainability and social issues. And students are demanding it, too. And students are demanding it. And, yeah, uh, yeah, so it's happening. You teach in one of them, right? Yes, it's hugely in demand. And I don't think that they don't quite know how to meet it so well. I mean, they, they do their best. Well, now everything's up in the air because everything's suddenly remote and they couldn't have planned for it. But they brought in some faculty who are sustainability minded and they have lots of the students are doing lots and lots of groups about it. There's it's much more their attention to the science is less strong. Uh, it's not as well grounded in, as, as I see it as it is well intentioned. So there's a lot of people who are doing their best, but not always that effective. But it's there. I mean, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, and we were so lucky to start from a blank, blank slate. We had no pre-existing faculty. We could hire 100% of our faculty. We put two faculty members in every classroom, one an academic and one a practitioner, and they team taught. And this, the model of the school, because it was brand new, we had no other choice, was co-creation. In other words, the students were empowered, were tasked with making the curriculum as good as possible because we were all in this together. And we also had a a very participative environment. The students brought in, because they were students who were often mid-career and very familiar with sustainability in some cases, maybe more so than some of their academic faculty, the knowledge was in the room. And so the the model of teaching, the pedagogy model, had to be drawing on all the wisdom in the room. And it made it such fun for the students, for the faculty. You know, it was just, it, it was so alive. And also, nobody was teaching anything that didn't have sustainability and social justice fully integrated into every unit, every every piece of the curriculum. So the fact, new, nobody had ever done that. 
And the faculty was really benefiting. Uh, I remember John Ehrenfeld, who was the head of the World Society of Industrial uh, Ecology and an MIT professor, said in his, uh, in his acknowledgement in the book that the students had forced him to think in entirely new ways and driven him way ahead in his thinking. I can remember shortly into his uh, first course, the students uh, pulled the metaphorical and on cord to stop the process. And they said, John, this is not, this is not working. We, uh, <laughs> we don't think this is what the way you should be teaching. You're trying to teach us why industrial ecology is a good idea. We know that. Would you please tell us how to do it? And he had no slides on the subject because at MIT, his teaching was focused on trying to move this idea forward inside the uh, MIT world, of, uh, mm. which was not into that level of cooperation between businesses to achieve uh, environmental purposes and so forth. And he had never been given the opportunity to teach the heart of the subject. So the students- He actually, when he talked about that moment, he can't talk about it without tears in his eyes because it was the, that one of the highlights of his career to be able to teach in that way. Now, you guys are talking about it with smiles on your faces. And I imagine in the moment, it, was, it must have been very, very difficult. And I also think... No, it was or, It was just all fun. <laughs> it, raising the million dollars a year to keep it alive was not fun. And given that sometimes even that was fun. <laughs> sometimes, but it, you know, we it and you know, I'm working to accrediting. It's a really hard road to do a standalone school. So yes, you're right. But the experience of the students and faculty, I think you could interview all of them, and everyone had a good time. It sounds like an amazing amount of gumption on your part to do it. it we were out of our mind and we were told so by everyone around us. You're going to lose your shirt, you know? <laughs> and then, and you, you sound like you're, you're like, yep, let's give it a shot. Or something. I mean, yeah, it sounds like did. that fed I you. Mean, we're still working at 77. But what choice did we have? Really, though? I mean, we, we were the beneficiaries of society. The internet had treated us very well. We were at an age where you're supposed to give back. You know, we were in our late fifties at that, uh, at that point. Yeah. And uh, very late 50s. And, uh, <laughs> and we, uh, we felt we had to do something. We did the analysis as to what, what our situation in life and our experience prepared us to do. And if we hadn't done it, we wouldn't have been listening to Josh because Josh <laughs> would, have told, would have told us, what is your passion? Uh, well, go ahead, figure out how you can do something about it. And even though the school eventually ran out of money. We, when we started up, we said, uh, you know, our purpose is to put ourselves out of business by getting the traditional schools to begin taking on this challenge. After uh, 10 years or so, they began uh, saying more or less what we were saying in their promotional materials is that we're bringing sustainability into the business uh, curriculum. And we had hundreds of faculty members from all over the country and, and administrators in business schools who visited our program. We were completely open door. They sat in the back of classrooms. They came to all of our, you know, convocations and so forth. And so we were populated continuously by our so would-be competitors because our mission was to show them how to do it. You know, I want to describe a situation that you did different then. I was at a conference a few months ago. It was a BCG. So it was a bunch of really high-level executives. And they were talking about, uh, it was in the fashion industry, and they were talking about Shipping, fulfillment, how you, you know, deliver the goods. And that's what the conference was about. And they invited me because they were trying to be more sustainable. And every place was 
finding ways that each company could become more efficient. So they were looking at driverless trucks and different warehousing techniques and things like that. And it seemed to me, and I raised my hand and said this, and the whole room looked at me. I said, say one of you makes driverless trucks. Your costs are, your costs are going to go down. You're going to be able to sell more product. Soon after, everyone is going to adopt the same thing. And the industry will move to be, in principle, more efficient. But generally, the way things, these things work is that the prices go down, people buy more stuff, and you end up having more total waste. As I look at it, this is, you know, you do this with plastic and recycling, and eventually you get individually wrapped apples, each one wrapped in plastic. And it's very easy for in a system, if you don't look at a system, if you just make, you can make every single element in that system more efficient and make the whole system more wasteful. Mm -hmm. That's right. Now, what you guys did sounds like the opposite. What I was proposing that they consider was industry leadership, systemic leadership, change the system, not elements within it. And it sounds to me like you guys looked for a leverage point in the system in order to change that system. Do I read that right? I mean, yes, absolutely. Yes. And when you look at the sustainability advances done in corporations, most of them come from collaborations, lateral collaborations, but outside the walls of the company. You know, collaborations between the directors of sustainability and and risk management and so forth, where they'll start a program and then they'll get, eventually it'll become a little NGO and they get everyone to sign on to it and do it. But it's done by cross-organizational collaboration. Because sustainability, climate change, it's a global problem. No one entity is going to make a difference. You know, it, it has to be done in a highly collaborative way. Which means very different relationships with your suppliers, for example, uh, where they become partners rather than uh, getting uh, beaten up by purchasing uh, agents, uh, as has been traditional in the, in the past. And so you want to sit down with them and say, okay, how can you ship that to us with less plastic? Do we really need to wrap everything like that? Uh, then we have to uh, send that uh, plastic to landfill. We don't want to do that. So if you could figure out how, how to do this differently. But that's a conversation that goes back and forth between uh, the uh, two friends, so to speak. Uh, and that real uh, problem, Josh, that you're pointing at is how do we consume less? And, exactly. And, yeah. and that's, that's a big problem when, we've got, when companies' purpose is to get people to consume more. I mean, that is, that is a huge problem there. <laughs> and you're doing it in your life, you know, and you're, you're demonstrating it. But how do we then impact the industrial sales marketing? Well, I, think, I, think, I, I think we have to build an economy that is based around selling things which are not stuff. So, for example, and, when you sell music lessons, you don't generate a lot of stuff. I mean, to be sure, the students eventually have to buy a musical instrument, but, you know, that will last them many, many, many years. And uh, whether it's massage parlors or any other form of service, uh, of coaching is another example of that. You're, you're helping people to find what their real purpose is so they don't waste money on, uh, on buying things to, uh, for purposes which are essentially competitive and, uh, and not adding to the world. So this is a chance for what do you think about it, Joshua? Because it is the big conundrum and, and you're trying to live it. Well, certainly, you know, politicians get elected based on GDP growth, not happiness growth. And like I, I, my podcast listenership is growing all the time. 
but I'm not even going to try selling ads on it because I'm promoting not growth. And I don't know many advertisers who are trying to promote not growth. I mean, I may be growing the number of listeners, but I'm trying to help them not buy things. And yeah. it also makes me think of people, anyone who walks in my apartment, not anyone, but a lot of times they walk in, they go, oh, I see you're a minimalist. Now I'm not into the labels, but I know what they're saying because I don't have a whole lot of stuff here. And the term minimalism, I think, is, is a misnomer because it looks at stuff and says there's little of it. But if you talk to a minimalist, they don't talk about stuff. They talk about relationships and emotions and, and hopes and dreams. And those things, they maximize. So minimalism, it should be maximal, maximalism or maximism, but no one looks at that part. But how can, let's, let's say you, you go to support, and how can you support large corporations in this transition? Well, oil companies. The way that I work is I speak to individuals, ideally leaders, people who are near leverage points in the system. And I talk to them about their values. I talk to them, if it's about the environment, I ask them what the environment means to them. Almost always their first answer is uh, a cocktail party answer. Uh, Oh, it's the children. It's, uh, you know, the polar bears. And it's something that's not really personal to them. But if I keep going back and forth, and why do people say cocktail party answers? Because they've been judged before. They've been laughed at before. They've been told, oh, it doesn't matter. But on my TEDx talk about, my third TEDx talk, I talk about the, the sledding hill near where I grew up. And that, that's very meaningful to me. And if you talk to me about how Bangladesh may be underwater soon, yes, it may be hundreds of millions of people, but that's actually more distant. It actually separates me from my personal experience with the environment. And so when I, I can talk to any executive, even I have no question that when I meet with the CEO of Exxon, or Shell, or Monsanto, or whatever, Pickett, you know, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, I guarantee that if I speak in a supportive, non-judgmental way, that they will, this person, these people will share something that means something to them from their childhood, from their future dreams, that's very personal. And if I can get them to act on that, and I invite them to come up with something that they can do themselves, that becomes meaningful for them and it breaks them out of the mold of how am I going to be judged and things like that. That's, I mean, you could call it values-based leadership. To me, it's, it's getting to, it's something that complements what everyone I think is doing, which is management, which is seeking compliance through measurable behavioral things. That's very important. Leadership, I think, focuses much more on emotions and images and stories and seeks not compliance, but inspiration. And the output is someone who wants to do things. Now, leadership without management, you're going to have people who want to do things. They might not be able to get it done. Management without leaders, you just kind of have the DMV. Put them together, and I think you can get cultural change. Yeah, I've been thinking a, a lot recently, as you know, you see, you see companies having terrible problems financially with customers, with, with their, what is their future going to be after the the recession and the pandemic, right? And so I've been thinking a lot about anti-fragility. I started thinking about resilience, you know, we, we all need to be resilient. And then you re- I realized, well, resilience is just like coming back to where you were before. It's like a rubber band, that's resilient. And so it's not a great word, but I've been talking about anti-fragility, which is taking a stress and using it to motivate coming out different and ahead. And that makes this time uh, full of potential uh, because everything has changed in the business world. I mean, I think we'll find that we've got, what, 
couple more years of recession, some people say five, we're going to be challenged to innovate at every level. And customers are going to be different. They are going to be, I predict, they're going to be more value-based. That after this this time of however long this the pandemic lasts and, and the uh, however long the the radical change in awareness of people about social justice issues that's happened in the last few weeks, you know, that's maybe going to happen on the sustainability climate change too, because people are being more thoughtful. And therefore, there's going to have to be a response from the people who are selling them stuff, right? And I, that, go ahead, I can't yeah, wait. I, agree the, I, I think we have the potential for that. And I think if we don't, lead, I, I think without specific leadership, I think people right now they're making their homes really great places to be and they can spend time with people, quality time in a way they, they didn't before when they were distracted, but the distractions will return. And I think that when flying becomes more available, all these companies are going to say, first of all, I think a lot of people are going to say, oh man, it's been a long time since I saw the Eiffel Tower. I deserve a, I deserve a treat. I better see the Rome or the Venice canals before they get dirty again. And, the, and, and then businesses are going to say, this is our chance to get market share. We better do it quick. And I think people will immediately drop back into what they did before. But we have the potential now to use this experience to change. If we don't intentionally do that, I think there's a pretty good chance we'll revert back to what we did before. Yeah, I, I, I want to I want to challenge that. I think I think you're prob- probably right, but I, I think it doesn't. It's not necessarily true. Uh, Libba uh, and to some extent, I uh, built a uh, a retreat center in in British Columbia for environmental learning, and and all our students from the business school went there uh, as part of their uh, orientation and uh, and took classes there in a remote uh, water access only uh, uh, property with uh, making its own power and growing a lot of its own food and uh, dealing with its own shit and, uh, you know, kind of a whole system there where you had to deal with everything. And people emerged from that permanently transformed in their attitude towards sustainability by saying, wait a second, we don't, you know, this is a simpler lifestyle that we're living here. We're having more fun. It's more beautiful. We're more in touch with nature. Our souls are are lifted by this. Maybe uh, we don't want to go back to just the way the world was before. Maybe maybe we actually see that there is an alternative. And I think that it's possible that uh, some of this will show people that there is an alternative. For example, just to take a very small example, I think for the foreseeable, perhaps forever, more meetings will be held virtually than flying around uh, uh, all the time just so that you can have a two-hour meeting with someone. I think there's a, there's a correlation between people being at home often with families if, they're, if they have families. And the people I talk to are relishing this time with their kids. You know, yeah, they're going crazy because, you know, the kids are always underfoot. But but there, it's about deep connections, about relationship. When you talked about the minimalist is a maximalist of relationships. And I think that's part of why there's this surprising change in the how people are addressing caring about Black Lives Matter, let's say, or people of color who have had oppression that we didn't necessarily take into account. 
as white people. And that we've kind of been revitalized as caring people. And I think it's extending to our politics. I want to, I want to return. Extend to sustainability and climate change, which, which is an ultimate caring issue for the people on the planet then that would be good. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was wanted to return to something you said earlier, which uh, was you said, uh, you know, one of the challenges uh, that we have uh, working in, in big companies, and, and Libba and I do tend to make our living by consulting to either coaching people in big companies or building systems inside big companies and ed- building education inside big companies. And there's part of us that is, a bit challenged at the moment uh, with that, because to take your example, if everybody consumes a lot less, that's not going to that's going to be very very challenging to the big companies. And essentially, what we have to do uh, in order to uh, solve the crisis, some of it is technological, but as you as you point out, it's not all technological. And in fact, we have to have a smaller economy. To have a smaller economy, we have to be more equal, so that there's enough for everybody. But it, and we do have a smaller economy right now. Yeah, <laughs> but we don't have a smaller economy that is functioning uh, in a steady state way, which is good for everybody. And so that that's a huge challenge. And basically, it means that we have to become a less capitalist society. I don't mean less market driven. I don't mean that we don't exchange things and uh, and that uh, that the market it doesn't have the influence that it has today. But I think that the investment community has to have a smaller influence than it has today. And so that when we are managing organizations, we're managing them for the people that are in those organizations and for the customers and so forth, more than we're managing it for the investors. It doesn't make sense that the priorities of the Ford Motor Company are the, the uh, making sure that the people who bought that stock in 1920 are being well rewarded for that investment, uh, uh, or the people who bought the the, uh, the shares from the people who bought the shares in, in 1920 are being rewarded, and that's more important than the well-being of the, the people in Ford, and it's more important than the benefit, the well-being of the customers, because we have to keep the faith with with those people who had the courage to invest with us in 1920. It doesn't make sense. I I can remember uh, sitting with. Uh, Yeltsin's chief economist, and Yeltsin was all excited about the uh, uh, the stock market, and he wanted to have a stock market in uh, in, in, in Yeltsin. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, he, he wanted to have a stock market in Russia, and his uh, economist was trying to figure that out. And uh, he, and he said to me, "So I, I think I understand the stock market. Uh, I saw all those people uh, uh, making bids and uh, and and, and carrying on." Uh, uh, buying and selling things. And what they're doing is they're providing money so that the uh, companies that are uh, want to build a new plant or whatever, they can get a new plant. And I had to say, well, it's not exactly like that <laughs> because those shares which are being traded are not giving any new money to those companies. They're giving money to the investors and, uh, and they are rewarding uh, the investors for something which was done a very long time ago. And the economist looked at me and he said, that can't be. Nothing that stupid could make sense. (laughs) (laughs) And he was having, you know, someone who is not, didn't grow up in capitalism, 
has extreme difficulty understanding how the society, the way we're running it, could possibly make sense with the total dominance of, uh, of decision-making based on the welfare of investors. That has to change. So what you guys are talking about is systemic change, and most people don't talk about it. I mean, it's talking about the changing the beliefs and the goals of the system, not just elements of it. Most people, when they talk about it, have not themselves started a school that changed things on a systemic level. So a lot of people, I discount what they do, they, do they really know what they're talking about? But you guys really do know what you're talking about from experience. It's not obvious, like how to make that happen is it's, it's hard. Yes, yeah, it is. The only way we've known to do it is to have demonstration projects like the school. We did some work in the U.S. Forest Service over decades, although the intense part of the work was a number of years, where we created internal markets within the Forest Service and had vendors who we would train to provide staff services. And then they could sell anywhere within the Forest Service and to some extent within the government. And it was a systemic transformation in that everyone in government became acquainted with it because they were actually selling to other agencies and so forth their little services. It had certain some some advantages. Uh, one of them was that in an internal audit, they discovered that uh, the people who are working in the program we started were 1.8 times as productive as the average Forest Service employee. Now, if the entire government were 1.8 times as mm-hmm. productive, we wouldn't have a deficit. So at least, well, maybe with the tax cuts now we would, but <laughs> in those days we wouldn't have. And the people were incredibly happy. We, we moved from a system based on dominance and control, which is what hierarchy is, basically a, a system based on dominance and control, towards an egalitarian system where the vendor and the customer are equally powerful. It doesn't work unless both of them agree to it. And, which is uh, what's wonderful about markets, because the vendor and the customer get to, uh, to make their choices. Each, right? have a, each have a say. And they were doing mundane jobs. Uh, you know, they were uh, doing recreational planning. They were uh, doing archaeological studies. They were scaling trees. Uh, they were uh, building roads and trails. They were doing the things which have to be done to manage a forest. But they were doing them instead of as a oppressed civil servant. They were doing them as happy entrepreneurs who are running their own lives and 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 bringing their own passion to work and uh, doing what they wanted to do. I remember a group called Above and Beyond, uh, and these were uh, wildlife biologists and uh, plant biologists. And what they did is they went in and they did biological surveys to find out whether it was okay to cut down all the trees or not. And they said, we just don't want to do this work anymore. The only work we want to be involved in is uh, is work which is restoring damaged ecosystems. So they set up their little business and, and went to work looking for customers who wanted to restore damaged ecosystems. And lo and behold, the next thing you knew, they were booked out two years in advance because they were good at what they were doing and they were living their dream and they were coming at it with a full passion of uh, what it is they, they uh, wanted to do in the world. By the way, I have to mention that the, their customers were people within the Forest Service or other agents, similar agencies that had transfer payments and actually had to pay for them as opposed to their competitors who they got for free that were part of the bureaucracy. But fortunately, they were enough better that that was okay. That was okay. 
these are the kinds of changes that uh, you look to see and you guys are making happen. I'm glad to hear. I wish I'd been involved with your school earlier. So do we. <laughs> well, we, we can only look forward. You guys have read my book since the last time we spoke. I have read the first part of your book, which is uh, I haven't gotten to the solutions yet, but I'm well acquainted with the dog show and, uh, and, and actually uh, asking myself questions. How much of what I do is the dog show? That's a deep question that you can you can ask yourself. Are we are we really just showing off uh, uh, and learning to to, uh, to show off, so to raise money or whatever it may be, get permission to do what we're doing, or are we really focusing on on how you build a, a business in a more organic way? And uh, I think that's a very powerful metaphor, and I, I I really liked what I read. I'm glad to hear. I figured that's what you were alluding to uh, in the email. And yeah, to me, it's what you guys are talking about. It's you guys, the people were working in the forestry service, as I understood it, based on their emotions, based on what they wanted, based on goals they chose for themselves. And I think most people don't do that. I mean, it's very easy to just say a job is, you know, I got to pay the bills. I'm going to go do what I'm Mm -hmm. looking for a job. It's like saying, please give me money. I'll do whatever you ask. If you're lucky, you have a sense of... um, I want to work in this industry versus that industry. But even when you pick an industry, you often don't, you know, people join good projects and leave bad management. They don't, they don't think of the people that they're going to be working with, the community that they're, going to, that they're going to work with. And if they switch the order and think of what they want to do, you know, the change they want to make and the people they want to work with, they get booked two years out in advance. But people don't get this. It's like, they just think, I, yeah, I want to lead, but first I got to work at McKinsey for a little while. And learn not to lead. I mean, they learn a certain type of leadership there, yeah. but not to develop their own values. I think that uh, people they want to work with is really important. This is something my, when I was trying to figure out what to do in my life that my dad said to me, he said, you know, think about the day-to-day of what you'll be doing. And that's important too. And who will you be doing it with? And are these the kind of people that you, you want to spend your life with? And uh, I think that's important. Uh, who do you want to be of service to? So I, I really like that aspect of what you're teaching. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Or I'm going to segue into talking about podcasts. So what listeners don't know is that we, we talked about, I mentioned how, I, I think I started first by talking about how leadership in the environment uh, Sweden had just come out. So the first new branch, I call it branch instead of franchise, branch like a tree branch. And you guys were talking about starting a podcast. We, we talked about, oh, maybe you would start leadership in the environment with your uh, maybe entrepreneur, entrepreneurship or something like that. I propose going through the process with that, uh, that I walk people through with you guys. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Yeah. And We've I, made a commitment to uh-huh. do podcasts. And we have no idea where to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't start with 
talk about microphones and the technical details and what software to get, but I will walk you through the process that I've developed here. And listeners are familiar with it. Usually I don't tell people like what I'm about to do, although a lot of them have watched my TEDx talks, which talk about it. But when you guys, the environment is obviously something, to correct me if I'm wrong, but the environment is something that's important to you guys. It's something you act on. It's something you've devoted a lot of resources to. Yeah, that and social justice. And it was always a combination in our school because we're, what we're learning, you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. With regard to the environment, what do you think about when you think about the environment? What motivates you? I mean, it could be lots of different things. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we have three kids and five grandchildren. And when I do the time frames. I'm also very much a child person. I love the kids worldwide, you know, and when, and I've worked with kids too. And when you do the time frames, life is going to be incredibly challenging in ways we don't even know now within their lifetimes, to some extent within our kids' lifetimes. Cause the time I think is- we can extend the, the time frame well beyond that, because if we think about our grandkids, when they're growing old, they will be caring about the future of their grandkids. And so that, that takes us, you know, it's not 50 years. They'll, when they're old, it'll be 60 years from now, and they'll be looking ahead uh, another 60 years there. So that's 120 years or more of uh, maybe. Well, you guys are talking about children and grandchildren and so forth, but you cared about the environment, if I read you right, before you had kids. That's true. And yeah. I feel like this, in fact, we almost didn't have kids uh, for that reason. So there's something there that tells me that something very important, something else, something uh, that was there prior to consider not having children, for example. What, what went into that? A uh, course at Stanford from Paul Ehrlich on the population bomb. Mm-hmm. So you took it from him. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> so what, what did you, what came up in the class? You were going to say Gifford. No, you said you, you first. Yeah. And also I grew up in the country, you know, I had my sledding hill too. Uh-huh. You know, I had the, the woods across the street and we had permission at that time as children to cross the street and spend the whole day building a fort and then be sure to be home by dinner. You know, it was a very different, very different time. And, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking that we can go back to those times, but I do know from from running a, a permaculture center for 25 years, that connection to nature is the most humanizing thing in the world. So that's, yeah, that you referenced my sledding hill. And, and I, I felt that, that you could go across the street and just do whatever you wanted. And that's, I feel like you're also saying that's not available to future generations. And But, the, but connection to nature is, is essential there. for humanity. And Gifford, did you have... Any experiences comparable or something like that that motivates you? Yeah, I spent a lot of the time, a lot of time in the woods when I was a kid and uh, wandering around. And there was a uh, a peat bog near us, so they had uh, incentiferous plants, and uh, it was a uh, you know nature was all around me. Whether it was uh, in a uh, a bottle of water taken uh, taken from the pond and looking at the paramecium swimming around inside it. Uh, particularly after throwing a little hay in there. Nature was, uh, you know, I come from a, a family of conservationists, so it never occurred to me that uh, you don't devote your life to doing something about the environment. And uh, then when the Freedom uh, uh, 
marches started in the early 60s, I, uh, I just joined in. And so that then became a really important part of, for me, of, okay, these are the things you work on in life. You try to do something about the environment. You try to do something about inequality in our society and racism. That's what a human being is for, as far as I knew, and particularly a, a human being who had the privilege to, you know, of a, an education that made it fairly easy to get a job and uh, so forth. So it, uh, I don't know, I never really considered the alternative. So I, I heard from each of you a connection, a deep connection and experience of immersion in the woods, of family, of a connection to nature, creating a humanity or connecting us with something deep in ourselves. And I also heard at the beginning a, a concern about the future, and but also not throwing up your hands, but expect an expectation that you could do something about it and be effective. Based on those things, as I, if I understood you right, I mean, if I got it wrong, based on what you said and what, what you felt, I invite you at your option to think of something you could do either as a couple or as individuals to act on those feelings. And a lot of people, when I say this, they think, What's the most important thing I can do? What's the biggest? I'm not saying change the world to fix everything, but to do something to act on those emotions that you already have. And a couple of constraints that I find helpful are, it has to be something new that you're not already doing, something that you do yourself. I have all these leaders who are so quick to say, oh, I'll get a team to do this or I'll appoint a committee to do that. But you know, we learn from our experiences. And so some, something you do yourself and something that in principle could be measured. So not just learning or raising awareness, although great to do those, but the next step toward something behavioral. So most people take a minute to go back and forth a few times because they're not like automatically thinking of things that they could do. But I wonder if you think of something that you might consider doing, and it could be short-term, to act on those feelings. Well, I have two thoughts, and they're very different. Okay. Uh, one is I'm very attracted by the no-flying rule. That's an emulation of of one of your practices. And so I, I am willing to do that for as long as I can. And I know you don't have a, a set, can never do it in, in yours either, but I'm, I'm willing to do that as a practice for as long as I can. And I have something else I don't think qualifies, so you can tell me that it doesn't, okay? And that's that my coaching practice is beginning to focus on activists within large companies. I just happened to be, a couple of them fell from the sky and I had the privilege of working with them. And guiding their activism within the companies, which is a very subtle process where, where you know, they could get themselves in trouble, they could offend people, you know, there's just a lot that could go wrong. And helping them through making really transformational change in a leadership, you know, at, at the top levels of a company is about as important as anything I've ever done. And I'm trying to define myself. And this is where, you know, there's a, there's a little giving up that has to happen, right? And I'm trying to define myself as just doing that as opposed to taking whatever work I can, but just doing that. Just helping activists within corporations be active within those corporations. Be effective, yeah, yeah, and just and putting that as my, you know, how I advertise myself. Well, I propose the first thing you said 
is something that meets all the criteria. And I propose that we make that something. And I like to make it a smart goal. I find that makes it much easier to do. And so it sounds specific, measurable, achievable, realistic. Now, time-bound. Could we set a time that we could speak? Let's say we speak to, to hear how it goes. What would be a good amount of time for you to get a sense of the experience? You've experienced something different. Because I think if we just said, let's talk tomorrow, it would probably be too early. No, and, it, and three months would be too early because most people aren't flying anyway. And it has to be you know, around a year or, or, or more. Yeah, I mean, at least a year. Okay, so then I propose that I'm sure that we'll talk between now and a year from now, yeah. but we'll put on our calendars to check in a year to see how that year has gone. That's right. And I've had several guests who have done year-long projects and they're fascinating. So I look forward to hearing that. Okay, great. And Gifford, does anything come to mind for you? Oh, and also Libba, um, for the other project, I propose we also make a smart goal there. And I'm very curious to hear how it goes, although I'd prefer to stick with one project to be the, the one for this podcast. But I'd be very interested in following up on that one as well. If Yeah, yeah, I would too. And I'm actually just at the moment of, of putting out some marketing materials and that it's very timely. Then we'll make that a part of our conversation as well, although we'll probably talk about it long before a year from now. Yeah, good, great. And, and I think that, that like, uh, like Libba, you know, when I try to have, have a, a big effect on the world, it has to do with inspiring other people to behave differently. And uh, so then the issue is, what am I going to do differently? Because I understand, you know, I, I understand uh, that that's the, the question. And uh, it all comes down to consuming less. But I'm not sure how to uh, make that into a measurable smart goal. Uh, it's not as easy as not flying where you can really tell whether you've done it or not. Well, I've talked to a lot of people who have said things similar to what you've said. And I, I find that a lot of them think, what's some big comprehensive thing that I can do? And they they find that usually on the second one, if the first one is just something simple, that you know, one simple thing that they can do without, that they used to buy or they used to use or they used to consume in some way. And once they do the first thing, things fall into place that would not have fallen into place had they not themselves personally acted. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you observe passing through your hands or going into your garbage can or something like that, that you think that doesn't, that, that's not necessary? I have a diabolical idea. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see if Gifford comes up with anything because it's, I find that it works. I, I, you know, I try to avoid giving people a task. If they come up with it, they, all, they often come back and say, you know, I've been meaning to do this for five years. Thanks for getting me started. Yeah. They're often surprised. They're like, oh, I didn't realize that would count or that would make a difference. And then they, they do something that seemed too small before, or too simple. And Joshua, while, while we're waiting for Gifford, I just want to tell you that the integrity that comes with even a small decision like yours, right? Some of the stuff you've done, mm-hmm. it communicates to people around you. The, the integrity communicates. Yeah. And the, the opposite of that also communicates when someone says, do this, that was something I'm, that I'm not doing. And yeah, I don't believe in leadership by example in its own. I just think that if you don't exemplify, it's very difficult to lead, often counterproductive to try. Yeah. Gifford is looking very pensive. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm struggling because the, 
the obvious thing to do that uh, is uh, in fact measurable is to to be a vegetarian and that's difficult in my household but uh well there a couple things that can factor in is that if it's difficult i mean some people for some people to be vegetarian for a year would be easy and some people to be vegetarian for one meal would be hard so setting a different time scale can change the nature of it or maybe a vegetarian 50% of the days, or, you know, you could measure it that way too. We've had yeah. some various medical things that make certain amount of high quality protein perhaps necessary. And we don't know more so for me than give it. There's also, well, we could also look in different areas. I mean, you said it was obvious, but. Okay. I know what I'll do. Uh-huh. I, I will fast two days a month. And is that something I actually, I should have asked this of Lib also. Uh, but for Gifford, is it something that resonates with the the emotions we were talking about before or other deep emotions relevant to the environment? I think fasting, uh, to your point, uh, learning to do without uh, can spread out into other areas. And fasting is good for your health. So it comes with a second motivation. Okay. And about, so it's specific, it's measurable, achievable, realistic. And so for time, when do you think we, about how long, from now, should we talk about it? Would you be able to share what the experience was like? Three months. So three months? Okay. So, and Libet, does your, the airplane not flying, it, was that something that resonates with something inside you? Yeah. I'm, I'm appalled by airplanes for environmentally. And uh, so, yeah. Okay. So then we'll talk, we'll talk more times. Three months for Gifford, one year, well, we'll check in in three months also with Liba and how the not flying is going. And I'm curious. So I walked you guys through this process. Is it, are you doing this for me? No, 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 no. I, I, I've been thinking about that for a long time. Okay. Go ahead, Gifford. No, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for the experience because uh, I think whatever we do, we have to find things that are both good, good for us and ways to, uh, to consume less and just be part of life. So the way that you two feel now, if I read you right, it's the, I see you guys know better than I do. There seems to be a kind of enthusiasm, a fulfillment, a, an, maybe an expectation of, of growth and success. And uh, that was always there. I mean, this was something I, I read that you guys were thinking about things like this from before. I mean, Libby, you said it, I think Gifford said it too. This is what, if you do this podcast, this is what you'll bring to other people. And there's the second episode where we talk about the experience. And I suggest to you, I think you guys think you're going to enjoy this process. It'll be challenging. I mean, I'm sure there'll be a time when someone says, hey, come to this thing. And you'll say, no, not flying. Or someone will say, it'll be the last day of the month and the day you have to fast. And someone will say, hey, I got this cake for you or whatever. I don't know. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And you guys, it, you'll, it'll probably be more valuable for that challenge. And when we talk about it later, I believe that however valuable you expect it to be, it will be more valuable, even taking into account what I just said. Mm-hmm. And Although you've given me an interesting strategy. And this is what... Just choose, huh? choose to fast in the middle of the month. To have the flexibility later? So, so, so if I postpone by, for two days because of something that happens, I'm still in the month. So, yeah, don't I mean, actually... Put the, don't put it at the end of the month. If you look at my behavior with, with like... I do these little tricks and they often work out. And that's why my famous no packaging vegetables do emerge. It tastes really good, but it was all these little experiments. And 
when you, when I, my strategy is when I do this with lots and lots and lots of people, especially people who are well-known, especially people who have leadership experience and, and have large communities, then people in those communities can say, wait a minute, this thing I was thinking of doing, I could do that too. I had my thing when I was a child. I had my, you know, my hopes and dreams. I had those things that I thought I couldn't share with anyone else. Well, if the Pinterest are doing it, I can do it too. And, you know, they're going to think about the, you know, maybe they didn't go to the woods when they were a kid, but maybe they went in the ocean and maybe they had a pet or, you know, they're sledding hill. And it, my goal is to activate everyone. And one, in my case, one well-known person, one leader at a time, one, well, in your case, a couple. And if you're interested in doing the podcast, you'd be bringing this to others, your world, the people that you're with. And I, to get it started, I'm saying it to you guys, but I'm also saying it to any listener because uh, uh, any listener who thinks there's a community that I want to connect with then they can be the equivalent of me meeting you guys, meeting, you know, Nobel Prize winners and Olympic gold medalists and Pulitzer Prize winners and Super Bowl winners and things like that. And they could meet whoever they want because people want, I believe people want to experience what you guys are experiencing, which is, oh, I can do this. I bet I'm going to like it. And then I train you guys into doing this technique. It's a four-step process that you guys probably saw me describe on the TEDx talk. And with the guy who started Leadership in the Environment Sweden, we took three or four training sessions, walking him through so he could practice with me. And then ultimately he interviewed me for the first episode and the second episode. So now we're getting super meta. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if you guys are interested in, in doing leadership in the environment, entrepreneurship or leadership in the environment, whatever you guys want to do, then I would walk you through and you guys would practice with me and then you guys would start doing it yourselves. And I'd, I'd show you how to what software you use and things like that too, the, the very basic things too. How's that sound? That sounds good. good. I, I, you, so if I get the picture, you get a guest and, and who, you know, is in a position of making an influence in the world, preferably, mm-hmm. or, or has interest in doing so. And you learn about them. You make them part of your, your community and that people know enough about them that they, they say, Oh, I'm now I'm familiar with that person. Oh, I can identify with that person. Or I, you know, I'd like to get to know that person better. And then towards the end of the conversation, you ask them what their one thing is that they might like to do. Uh, I ask them what they care about. Yes. Yes. And often they'll give me an answer. That's not their sledding hill. It's going to be something less personal. Yeah. And you guys start talking about kids and grandchildren and this analytical perspective toward the future, right. which is to me very interesting, but less personal. So I, I, I went back to... I agree. Yeah. And you pulled us back into a, a, a memory, a felt experience. Yeah. In your case, it was a felt experience. In some cases, it's different. Everyone's unique. Right. But it's generally, you can see it in their demeanor. They become more thoughtful. They become more reflective. And there's often going to be details that you didn't ask. Right. And like, um, you could stay out as late as you wanted. There was no permission. You could just do it. And then they're really dipping into something touching, very meaningful, something emotional. Then I invite them at their option to act on that. And I hold back on, I, I resist suggesting to them what to do. I don't want them to do something that I suggested. And almost always, most people at this stage, they start, they'll start sharing what they already do, they'll start sharing, I don't really know what to do. And a lot of things, I think, holding them back from being judged. And then I just have to bear, stay with them for a bit. 
And then something will usually come up. And then I say, let's make it a SMART goal. And making a SMART goal makes it suddenly, without making a SMART goal, oftentimes, if it's something like, I'm, not, I'm never going to eat meat again, it's tough to work with that because it seems so, it's too vague. But if you make it SMART, then they start responding like, and when I've had this done myself, I've been on the receiving end of this as well. I feel like, oh, now I know exactly what to do. And then it falls into place. And then you schedule the next, after we stop recording, I'll get on my calendar and we'll, and we'll figure out when the next conversations will be. I mean, you guys will probably also talk about this, but also following up the second episodes. Yeah. It's really fun. And you get to meet amazing people. <laughs> and when it goes well, you inspire them. Yeah. And people who are following your model get better at doing podcasts, you know? So it's, it's also a training ground for getting our voices out there. Yes. And I don't pretend that I am going to reach a, a meaningful fraction of 8 billion people, but lots of different leadership environments can. You know, you've done hundreds of these. So I remember you're saying, right? Yeah. I think I'm up to episode 300 something. Yeah. And then when you guys get up to episode 300 something, and you guys also lead someone else to start their version, someone else to start their version, that's more exponential growth. I'm just doing linear, just me on my own. So I propose that we break here and pick up next time, I guess in three months, I'll probably talk to both of you and then also in a year to record then. But I'd like to wrap up with asking if there's anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or any words that you want to say directly to listeners. Um, Yeah, maybe I'll start with one thing. I think that this is a very, very difficult time for the whole world. You know, with the pandemic and with the, uh, the half of the people in the world are going to be economically and, and economically in terrible straits for a while. I mean, this is a very, very difficult time. But I also see that it, it's a time that we are already using to make the world better. And the more of that we can do, oh my gosh. It's such an opportunity. And it, it has a lot to do with about equity and compassion and that bringing that into the uh, sustainability and climate movement is the one element that's going to give legs to the sustainability and climate movement. And Gifford? Yeah, I certainly agree with Libba about that. And, uh, you know, one of the, uh, I don't know that this relates to anything, but one of the things that I'm, find myself doing is trying to finish a a novel about climate change and that's the uh, that's not the that's trying to inspire other people rather than uh, trying to inspire myself but it is uh, an expression of purpose i don't know how that fits into all of this but that's uh, maybe when we uh, get back together again in a year uh, we'll be able to talk about that who knows I might actually finish. I think tying this back to purpose is the root of it all, of not just sleepwalking through these things, but getting back to our purposes. And Libba and I are both struggling with how to uh, infuse our work with greater purpose, uh, how to refine the ways in which we're we're working in the world so that they are more directly aligned uh, with purpose. And that's... uh, that's an interesting journey. I think uh, 
uh, I'm very, very happy with the way Libba's uh, coaching practice is developing because it uh, is so directly connected to her purpose. Well, I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin our second conversation, our, our conversation in three months, with the question: Did this connect with purpose? Did it resonate with those things? And in the meantime, uh, Libba and Gifford Pinchot, thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. A quick note again, anyone listening who wants to meet the most valuable people you can in the field of your choice and make them feel great about helping create an environmental legacy, contact me and I'll get you started. Back to Gifford and Libba. Both of their commitments seem challenging, but heartfelt and meaningful. Fasting and not flying resonate with me. I've done both and I've, they've been tremendous for me. Do they sound hard to you? I'm curious how people think that Gifford and Libba will do. I see a trend that when people care about what they do, the more challenging, the more aligned with their values their commitments are the more rewarding they find them. I hope that Gifford and Libba inspired you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.